4: is the Tom Hartman program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Professor Richard Wolf will be with us. The war in Ukraine is taking place in the world's fifth largest wheat producing nation. What is that gonna mean socially and economically for both America and the world over the next couple of years? Also, can Russia be de-Putinized? You know, didn't Putin call for regime change in the United States? Mueller indicted, as I recall, a dozen or 14 Russian intelligence officers for dumping pro-Trump information into social media and collaborating with, you know, releasing hacked documents and hacking the DNC. I mean, Putin came out and said, well, he didn't say it, but he did it. He he created a regime change in America. He brought us Donald Trump. Also, can Russia de-Putinize itself? We'll get into that. And our crazy alert in the first hour, Michael Flynn is claiming that Bill Gates and George Soros are planting under-the-skin tracking devices in you and me. Yeah, all for the new world order, whatever that is. Also, just at the top of the news right now, Russian uh, oligarch Roman Abramovich, he's an anti-Putin Russian oligarch who got together with a couple of Ukrainian negotiators to meet with the Russians for peace talks earlier this month. Well, guess what? They showed up. They hung out with the Russians. They drank the tea. And now Abramovich and the other negotiators, inclu- including the Crimean tatter lawmaker uh, Rustemov Umarov, Rustem Umarov, excuse me, are all, uh, are all showing symptoms of having been poisoned. Their skin is peeling off their hands. It's peeling off their faces. Uh, their eyes are red. It hurt, their, their tears hurt. Uh, Apparently, the poison, they didn't get enough of the poison that it killed them, but uh, they're not in good shape. Gee, what a shock, huh? Anyhow, let me start out with Clarence Thomas. This is an amazing story. It's the lead story over at HartmanReport.com this morning. It's titled, Democrats Must Demand Justice Thomas Resign and His Wife is Prosecuted. And my whole point is that this has happened before. And there's like this giant, it's, it's fallen into a giant memory hole. Back in 1968, 1968, I, I remember these. They, they were called the Fortis Film Festivals. They were happening around the country. Uh, Yale University famously did one. There was, uh, there was I, I believe there was one at MSU. I didn't show up, so I can't say for certain, but I believe there was. Um, this started in sixty eight when, in June of nineteen sixty eight the Chief Justice of the us Supreme Court, Earl Warren, the court was liberal at that time. It had a liberal majority. And the Chief Justice, Earl Warren, a liberal who had been appointed by by uh, Dwight Eisenhower actually, uh, Earl Warren decided that he was going to resign in June of sixty eight because the elections were in November of that year, and the next president would come in in January of sixty nine. and he wanted to make sure that Lyndon Johnson would have a full six months to get a replacement for him on the court. So Congress then, the Senate, had to do two things. Number one, they had to move a new person into the chief justice position. And number two, they had to find somebody to replace Earl Warren in, in what would not be the chief justice seat, but in that now empty seat. So the proposal that Lyndon Johnson made, that President Johnson made, was that Abe Fortas, the only Jewish member of the court become the chief justice and that a guy by the name of homer thornberry who you've never heard of because he never made it to the court would be the guy who would fill the empty seat well republicans in particularly the nixon campaign keep in mind richard nixon at this time was campaigning for president he was the republican nominee republicans went nuts and they started they, they 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 dug through all this stuff and found that Abe Fortas, Supreme Court justice, had taken a $15,000 speaking fee for speaking to a university group. Now, this is, by the way, not uncommon. In fact, Clarence Thomas has taken a $15,000 speaking fee. But this was the basis of their attack. They They just went nuts throughout 1968. And finally, toward the end of the year, Abe Fortas said, okay, screw it. It's not worth the effort. I don't want to be chief justice. And so uh, LBJ said to Earl Warren, can you stay on the court for a while? And then when Nixon came in in January the following year, he said, can you stay on the court for a while? And so Earl Warren stayed on the court until June of 69. But that's just the beginning of the story. This is where it gets really wild. So Fortas is not on the court. And and by the way, Fortas didn't say, I'm not going to do this until September. The election was in in, uh, November, excuse me, in October. He backed away and the election was in November. So, you know, Lyndon Johnson never got to put his own pick on the court. It was just, it, it was sort of like uh, Merrick Garland. So when Nixon came in in 69, there was an empty seat and the chief justiceship was going to be empty when Earl Warren left. So when Nixon came in, he, what he did was he had John Mitchell, who had been his campaign manager and had been trashing Abe Fortas, he had John Mitchell launch a Justice Department investigation into Abe Fortas' wife. Because there had been allegations back when Fortas, when when Johnson first, you know, proposed Fortas for the Supreme Court uh, chief justice position, there were allegations from right wingers that there was a secret document in his wife's safe that showed that she was involved in tax evasion. Well, there was no such secret document. It, I, nobody had ever produced a shred of proof about this. This was just a charge that was leveled by the Nixon campaign against Abe Fortas and against the Democrats. But. The attorney general of the United States, John Mitchell, had one of his top lawyers, a guy by the name of William Rehnquist, prepare to convene a grand jury to prosecute Abe Fortas's wife. And at that point, Fortas, looking at the possibility of spending years and hundreds of thousands of dollars defending himself and his wife, a grand jury after all can, can indict a ham sandwich, just said, screw it. I'm out of here. I'm going to resign from the Supreme Court. So Nixon now has two seats to replace, Fortas and, and uh, Warren. So what I'm saying is, why don't Democrats do the same? Launch, you know, have, have uh, Merrick Garland launch an investigation into Jenny Thomas. It, it certainly appears that she engaged in seditious conspiracy. We're, we're seeing seeing these, these clips all over the place. Launch an investigation. the Justice Department and Congress launched an investigation into Jenny Thomas just like they did back in '69 and start putting pressure on Clarence Thomas to resign from the Supreme Court. He has behaved, I mean, you know, Ginny Thomas didn't, oh, the other, the other thing that Abe Forrest did is he took $20,000 as a, as a f, uh, honorarium, as a, essentially a kind of a salary for being on the board of a, of a nonprofit foundation. Well, Ginny Thomas has taken hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps over a million dollars, from nonprofit foundations, you know, like Heritage and groups like that. So it seems to me like what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and the Democrats should get all over this. Instead, they're calling for Thomas to not just to just recuse himself on issues having to do with January sixth. Come on, can you spell weak need? I mean, come on, prosecute or begin the investigation preparatory to prosecution of Ginny Thomas and go after Clarence. Get this guy off the court like they took Abe Fortas down. Les in uh, Winnemucca, Nevada. Hey, Les, what's on your mind today?
5: Good morning. We've got a guy that's AG here that's acting like he's William Moore because he's not doing anything. There's a myriad of crimes out there. There's the Trump family, and the whole bunch of them are guilty of all kinds of different crimes, and it's It's just out in the public just out there right where you can look at and say, Okay he did this, okay he did that, okay he did that. Which one why don't they choose something and start going after this guy?
4: This guy being Clarence Thomas, you mean
5: Well, you know, his wife made a lot she worked for Coke Industries for years.
4: She hasn't worked for Coke Industries. She has she has worked for right wing nonprofits that are funded and you know, helped out, as it were, by by the Koch brothers over the years.
2: But, and, okay, and, and, but she worked for a... Product. But she's
4: taken hundreds That's of thousands good. of dollars. Oh. You know, Abe Fortas took $20,000 yeah. from a, a non-profit. And for that, he resigned from the U.S. Supreme Court.
5: I get the point. What I'm trying to say here is... Why doesn't the attorney general do something?
4: Well, that's... Uh, unfortunately, done. the attorney general doesn't have a question and answer session. so I don't know the answer to your question. You know, I wish he would. I'll say that very much. I, I wish he would. I think that we've got a... a you know, a, it, it's looking like we've got a complete wimp in the Department of Justice or the in senior the ranks of the 20 Justice 20 Department 20. are still filled with leftover Trumpies. This is one of my biggest concerns, Les, is that by letting Republicans get away with this stuff continuously, and the media just sleepwalking past this stuff, that it's just going to get worse and worse. Les, you know, thanks for the call. This, you know, I meet the press. For example, they spent 10 minutes talking about President Biden saying that Putin shouldn't be in office. They spent 45 seconds discussing Ginny Thomas. Similarly, on Fox News. The word gas price was mentioned 580 times, Clarence Thomas 14 times. On CNN, gas was mentioned 1,170 times, and Clarence Thomas' story was mentioned only 100 times. On ABC's This Week Roundtable, they spent 10 minutes, this, by the way, from uh, Eric Bollert's uh, Media dissecting uh, Biden's Putin gaffe, or so-called gaffe. I agree with Joe Biden. And just three minutes acknowledging the Supreme Court's... Uh, <laughs> What? Destruction? <laughs> I don't know. The Wall Street Journal has not yet run even one single front page story about Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas. Not one. So you know where the priorities of the, of the Murdoch family are. Who can de-Putinize Russia? Russians are having this conversation. Stick around. We'll be right back. How does Russia get through this? Mikhail Shishkin is a Russian novelist. He's, uh, I mean, like a big time. He's like kind of, you know, like Stephen King in Russia. And he just wrote a fascinating piece over at The Guardian and, you know, raises some really important questions. He points out, first of all, that that Russia has only flirted with democracy twice. In 1917, the first Russian democracy lasted literally a few months. And then in the 1990s, uh, Russian democracy lasted a couple of years. Uh, He doesn't point this out. I do in my upcoming book, The The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. Uh, Russian democracy was destroyed when George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton and Milton Friedman basically said to Russia, you will adopt neoliberalism. You're going to be our big experiment to prove that neoliberalism works. And, of course, what it did was it produced an oligarchy, which is what neoliberalism always does. But anyhow, he, he goes on to say, you know, he talks about how Hitler's Germany found its way out through a total crushing military defeat. But when Russia became a democracy in, in, in the early 1990s, he said there, there was no de destalinization stalinization of Russia. There was no Nuremberg trials for the Communist Party. And now he says Russia's fate depends on de-Putinization. And so how does he think this should be done? Well, he says, you know, the, the uh, German population was shown concentration camps in 1945. He said, similarly, Russians must be shown destroyed Ukrainian cities and the corpses of children. He said, we Russians must openly and courageously acknowledge our guilt and ask for, for forgiveness. He says, neither NATO nor Ukraine can de-Putinize Russia. We Russians must clean up our own country ourselves. And he asked, are, our country, are, are, are we up to the task? In fact, he asked this question, and it's, he, he, I'm assuming he, he's not asking it rhetorically. He says, do a dictatorship and a dictator give birth to a slave population? And obviously, he's using the word in a, a different context than we would here in the United States. Or does a slave population give birth to a dictatorship and a dictator? The chicken and the egg. How can this vicious cycle be broken? How can a new Russia begin? He adds, can a democracy establish itself without a critical mass of citizens, without a mature civil society? I would argue probably not, but, you know, uh, again, I, I would say we screwed this up, or we helped screw this up. He said, the world is calling for a Russian Nuremberg, but who in Russia will organize and carry out these legal proceedings? A long, painful rebirth, he summarizes, is the only way forward for Russia. I agree. And, and I think it's going, to be, it's going to be very difficult. They're going to need a lot of help from us and the rest of the world. And meanwhile, we've got to, we've got to clean up our act and deal with our own oligarchs here in the United States and try to restore democracy by, uh, number one, overturning or rolling back, yeah, overturning Citizens United and the, and the decisions that preceded it.
6: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
4: Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's com slash Wondery. Crazy alert. This is insane. Michael Flynn. Uh, he was just on the uh, X-22 report. This is a, uh, a podcast and he says the, uh, the the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab wrote a book a couple of years ago about how technology is changing the world. It was a very plain vanilla book. But because of that, Michael Flynn says uh, he, along with Microsoft founder Bill Gates and George Soros, that Jewish billionaire, are in it on this scheme, Michael Flynn claimed. These are very real and very, actually, they're very dangerous people. These are people who see a global world order. He says, Klaus uh, Schwab in his book, he says, uh, it's the fourth industrial revolution. He said, these are real people. These are real things. They have an intent to have a new world order. By the way, I don't understand why Republicans are all hysterical about the phrase new world order when it was George Herbert Walker Bush who who used that phrase. And I think it was in a State of the Union address. I'm I'm working from memory here, but, you know, it, it was the late 80s, early 90s. And George Herbert Walker Bush, I'm pretty sure it might have even been his inaugural address that he said he was calling for a new world order. Anyhow, here's Michael Flynn. These are real people. These are real things. They have an intent to have a new world order. They have an intent to track every single one of us. They're going to put it under our skin. And they use a means by which it is under the skin. And that means is, oh yeah, vaccines. I forgot. They've got nanorobots in them that seize control of our brains. Didn't you know? That's why I'm talking like this today. I had the vaccine. In fact, I've had it three times. It must be the nanorobots speaking through me. Joe Biden is dictating my words, even now, via the nanorobots that have taken over. Come on, Michael Flynn. You know, I I, I don't know which is more astonishing, that a former general is promoting this kind of insanity, or that as many as 20% of Americans believe him. I started my rant, I started talking about the Fortas Film Festivals, and then I, I kind of jumped topics and I didn't close the loop on that. My apologies. Let me just tell you what the Fortas Film Festivals were. Abe Fortas, along with a majority of members of the Supreme Court in the, in the I forget what year it was, 66, 67, in the, in the mid-60s, voted to legalize pornography, at least um, mild pornography in the United States. Uh, in this case, it was public, you know, full frontal nudity, and uh, as art, and so Strom Thurmond, this this uh, right wing racist, he was a Southern Democrat, but he, you know, he he and the Republicans were all about this stuff. Um, Strom Thurmond got a hold of the films that had been part of the lawsuit that led to the legalization of pornography along with a bunch of other dirty movies, <laughs> you know, just any dirty movies that they could find. And, uh, they, and, and he got a, uh, a meeting room in the U.S. Capitol and turned it into a 24-hour-a-day, or I don't know if it was 24 hours a day, but, you know, for several hours every day for several days, for, for about a week, actually, Strom Thurmond and his buddies, they, keep in mind that it was the entire United States Senate back then was white men, Um, I I don't know if this was before or after. Was Margaret Chase Smith was the first female senator? My memory on that is a little foggy. But in any case, it was all these old white men going in to watch dirty movies and coming out going, oh, we can't have this. And we got to get rid of that Abe Fortas because he voted for that. So that was the original Republican attack on Abe Fortas was that he voted for dirty movies. And when that didn't stick enough, then they shifted to, oh, and he's corrupt. He took $15,000 as a speaking fee. And that was all of 1968. And that was enough to get him to no longer try to be chief justice. Then the following year, when Nixon became president and John Mitchell, his campaign manager, became attorney general, then they said, let's take Fortas off the court altogether the most liberal member, the only Jewish member of the court. Let's get rid of him altogether. And so that was when John Mitchell started, you know, said he was going to a panel. He was going to have William Rehnquist, his right-hand lawyer, who later became chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Right-wing chief justices, by the way, appointed by Richard Nixon, were on the Supreme Court for 32 years as a consequence of this, of the, of this event or in large part as a consequence of it. I realize several of the people that Nixon appointed um, didn't turn out to be the conservatives he hoped, but he he got his, you know, he got Lewis Powell on the court and uh, all that kind of stuff. So this is is how it played out. This is what it's all about. Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Dan in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today?
2: Uh, Yeah, I wanted to kind of give you an an Omaha report on Jenny Thomas. Okay, go for it. On Sunday, there was a big spread about her participation and everything and uh this morning when I picked up the paper there's absolutely nothing there the omaha world herald describes itself as a conservative newspaper which means that for the rest of us we don't get any news just what they want us to hear right. and this state has been plagued with all of this misdirection since well since I let's say rush limbaugh yeah. And we have to deal with that because those people make this t- city live as if it was a small town. And I just want to let you know that they're busily repressing anything here like they usually have done in my 78 years. And it's disgusting. <laughs> so yeah. Say. yeah,
8: I get it.
4: Dan, thanks a lot for the call. Ken in Red Bluff, California says you disagree with me. So you go to the front of the line, Ken. What's up?
5: Well, I was thinking that maybe Biden's statement about Putin needing to be taken out of power might not have been a mistake that the White House was walking back, since if you think about it, his advisors and cabinet are pretty much the same ones that were on Obama's, yeah. And they were pushed for regime change in Syria, the regime change in Ukraine, in That's Libya. How we kind of ended up there after. Yeah. Clinton pulled the nukes in 94 and promised we would protect Ukraine. Yeah. But I'm thinking that his advice maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they're going to go for. You know, I mean, they, I, think, they, they you, I think you may be right, Ken. Regime
4: changes. Yeah, Jennifer Rubin has an op-ed in The Washington Post today, a, a longtime Republican, very conservative uh, columnist for The Washington Post. And what she's saying is that Biden was right, and his advisors, who rushed out within minutes of his having said it, to say, oh, no, he's not talking about regime change, they're wrong. And if that's what you're saying, Ken, that's what I'm saying, and I'm agreeing with you. We're not disagreeing, just oh. FYI. but
5: Well, I, I just... They have a history of it, his advisors, which were the same ones that advised Obama on.
4: I totally get it. I think it's time to take names and kick ass here. <laughs> Ken, thank you for the call. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up?
6: What you were saying, your, your rant uh, the Fortis Film Festival, this, this kind of plays into what I think. By the way, the Supreme Court did not vote to legalize pornography. They actually voted that the First Amendment protects some types of nudity as free speech. Correct. in Jacobellas Jackie Jackie versus Ohio, in which Potter Stewart said, I know pornography when I see it, and this isn't pornography. They allowed the state to outlaw pornography, but not to outlaw free speech. They bet, that, was the, that was the community standard decision. What my grievance is about the Supreme Court is not so much about Clarence Thomas, but I'll put it this way. I think it's time we declare that a black woman does have the luxury to speak up to southern white men, and frankly, southern white women, who are distorting her record and distorting the facts of her hearings, and do so you and, think she should have? you on. think Judge
4: Jackson should have gone all beer breath Brett? She didn't have to go beer-bong
6: Brett. We were talking about Clarence Thomas. He was the first beer-bong Brett. He was You're out. Of, right. He was obnoxious and offensive in his hearings because he was being accused of essentially the same thing that right. Fred Kavanaugh was. Right, and I he called it a high-tech black, lynching. Why a black man can stand up for himself, and a drunken white man can stand up for himself, but a qualified black woman can't. by the way, the Republicans, who is it, it's people on the left who keep saying that she doesn't have the luxury to stand up for herself. I don't hear anybody on the right saying that. I hear Lindsey Graham saying, I'm not going to vote for her because she's soft down crime. And same with Ted Cruz. You know what's ridiculous about that, because she couldn't stand up for herself, is that that makes no sense, because as a federal judge, the federal bench doesn't deal with, with criminal statutes. Right. The federal bench—that's that, state courts. The federal bench, the federal government has no constitutional authority to pass general criminal statutes. The only review of criminal statutes that a federal judge would have would be to, to evaluate the constitutionality of state criminal statutes, or the criminal statutes that the federal government does have the authority to pass are those that subvert the Constitution or are somehow. Here's
4: in I get it. Now here's my complaint, Paul. Last night on TV, one of our Democratic senators—and I'm not going to name her because I just—I I don't want to—I don't want this interpreted as I'm, tr- I'm trash talking her because I'm not. At least she spoke up. But one of our Democratic senators came out and said, you know, it's really important that Clarence Thomas recuse himself from anything having to do with January 6th. And I'm like, well, yeah. duh, but instead, I mean, if this is a negotiation, you start with the most extreme position you can. It should be the D- Justice Department needs to investigate Jenny Thomas with an eye to possible prosecution, and they need to convene a grand jury, just like John Mitchell threatened to do with Abe Fortas' wife back in 1969. And Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice, Associate Justice, needs to resign. I mean, why are Democrats not calling for those two simple things? And then if they want, settle for he'll recuse himself. Because right now what they're getting is uh, they're calling for a recusal and they're going to settle for (laughs) absolutely nothing. Right. Okay,
6: so to to finish my point, is that if Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson were soft on crime, for instance, give me an example. January 6th. Those were the kinds of federal crimes we're talking about. So if she were soft on crime as a federal judge, that would mean that she's erring on the side of restraining the federal government's power to be a radical prosecutorial power, and that's exactly what the right wing keeps calling for. Yeah. So, yeah.
4: No, I, I get it, Paul. Your, your arguments are brilliant, but the, you know the hearings are over. But Judge Thomas, Justice Thomas, is still on the bench. Paul, thank you for the call, Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's on your mind today?
0: Hey, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call, Tom. Uh these these the Republicans are going to complain either way we go it. And when they call us bleeding-heart liberals, that is mainly because we won't go to the bottom of the barrel with with them and act as foolish and as reckless as they have acted. But because we won't do that, we're not willing to break eggs and make an omelet. We're not willing to do what's necessary. They put these people in their. We will never put them in their place, but we got to let them know they can't walk over us. Yeah. and that and that's what they have been doing. And they use our discomfort, uh, response to them negatively, and they use it against us. Let's say as Judge Brown had became irritated and aggravated and said something to them. Oh, look, she has no control over herself. She's an angry. Right. Either way, these people going to say. Whatever the situation is, they're going to try to turn it. They're going to turn it against us any way you slice it. We need to say, listen, this is what they're going to do. Like the situation with Joe Biden is saying that regime change. I don't Well, yeah, he took it back. But the media is pushing the, the narrative that he was, going, he was going for regime change. This is what he's going for, regime change. Regime change. He's never said nothing about regime change. But because the media sounds better with the media and they don't realize what they're doing is they're like schoolyard instigators. They're trying to start. a. Oh, they realize it,
4: Tyrone. (laughs) (laughs) They realize it. I mean, we've (laughs) got a media that is well stocked with Republicans. It is well stocked and it's owned by people who are entirely Republicans. And, uh, you know, Ted Turner is long gone. (laughs) <laughs> the last Democrat who owned a major media operation. Tyrone, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Spot on. Uh, it, it seems like Republicans are motivated by anger and fear, and Democrats are, are trying to bring the country together. Well, sometimes you've got to, like he said, break some eggs to make You're an omelet. to Tom Hartman. Malcolm in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Hey, Malcolm, thanks for listening to the Tom Hartman app. Very cool. What's
7: up? Good day, Tom. I'm just here to talk about the justice system. It it has been broken, and we have two systems. One that prosecutes essentially the bottom 99%, and then there's another one that kind of gives slaps on the wrist to the 1%. Yep. Steve Bannon, he was arrested for not testifying on the January 6th committee, and he wasn't in jail long enough to finish a cup of coffee. And all that did was, was bolster his celebrity... Actually, he was arrested for
4: stealing over a million dollars from people who gave it to him to build a wall on the southern border.
7: Was that where he got his pardon from?
4: That, yes, that's what he was arrested for. The January oh, okay. 6th stuff, that referral to the Justice Department was in January, that the January 6th committee in January of this year... Three months ago, the January Sixth Committee referred a criminal referral to the Justice Department to Steve Bannon, and we still have yet to hear from the Justice and still
7: Department. still wait. Yeah, right. And secondly, with Clarence Thomas, if this were Ketanji Brown Jackson's husband, he would have been indicted probably last week, yep. and she would be either asked to resign or, and possibly, they would ha- have an investigation as to what she knew and when she knew it. Yep. And there's Sonia would Sotomayor yesterday. exactly. And so once again, it ties back into favoring uh, most likely who's in charge and who has enough power. Yeah. And even for Biden to say that we should get rid of Putin, if Trump said it, there would be zero apologies for it.
4: No, of course not. Of course not. I mean, you know, (laughs) Trump was like, uh, you know, with uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, I'll do nuclear war with you. Yes, I'm happy to. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's just Trump. You're absolutely right. Malcolm, thank you very much. Jerry in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Jerry, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up?
1: Well, first, I want to say uh, I want to apologize for yelling at you last time. You were kind enough to let me on your show. I don't um, recall. I'm was, sorry. But, well, I was incensed about, uh, I've been incensed about this uh, Ukraine invasion since it happened, and uh, I was a little uh, beside myself. Okay. But uh, anyway, I just want to, real quick, I just want to say that. I don't think it's going to turn out well for Ukraine. I think there's going to be a no. lot more death and destruction before it's over. Unfortunately, I agree. I, agree. I think you know and, what
4: uh, Putin's trying to do is establish a land bridge between Russia and Crimea. I mean, he'd yeah. like to go all all the way over to the uh, the far western southwestern border. There, he wants you know he he, yeah. he, he wants access to the uh, a an ice free year round access to the Mediterranean.
1: Yes, he does. Uh, but the problem is, I don't know if I if I trust the the conventional stupidity that uh, we're engaged in right now about all these sanctions and everything else uh, about Ukraine because uh, you're just pushing this guy into a corner. He's already unstable, and people are talking about him launching one or two weapons. That's all I hear about one or two. What if you launches all five or six thousand that he has at once? Then what
4: do we do? Well, he's not going to do that. What 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 we would do is how do you
1: know he's not going to do that?
4: Because he's not suicidal, he's not an idiot. It's could, remotely could that. conceivable that if, if just like in the United States, if the president orders a nuclear strike, there's a whole chain of command it has to go through. That's true of right Russia the as States. well.
3: Yes.
4: I, I really don't uh, well, think they,
1: that. Do we? Do we have that? Do they have that? I don't know. Yes, they do. I
4: can, I can, I can, I can tell you, they definitely do. And uh, so I, we're
1: I, just I, hoping that they don't follow the orders to launch the weapons if he gives the orders.
4: You got okay. it, Jerry. You got it. Thanks, thanks a lot for the call. Dave, Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up?
6: Hey, not too much, Tom. On this topic of deputinizing Russia, okay. I guess I want to disagree with... Well, I don't know where you stand on it, but you are telling the truth, and I don't know if anyone's listening. But the reality is, all right, we have a problem in the United States. We have 70 million people that prefer what the Commonwealth of Independent States is. 70 million Trump voters, they prefer it, because what Russia seriously is... Is a confederacy. What's his name? Primakov. Uh, he's dead now. Primakov died, uh, and he wrote a big book on how Russia cannot exist in a unipolar world dominated by America. Right. But without getting into all
1: that, Tom. Okay. Well, I think we're going back. That- we're going
4: back to a bipolar world. I think it's going to be an alignment of Russia and China, and I think Russia's going to be the client state to China, and you know ultimately it, it's going to be them against the West. It's going to be the oligarchies. Well, I think you could probably describe China as an oligarchy, too. It's going to be the oligarchies against the democracies. And the big question is, will America, you know, I mean, Putin tried to turn America into an oligarchy by putting Trump into office. And Trump brought a bunch of oligarchs with him, put billionaires in his cabinet, you know, passed oligarch-friendly rules, you know, cut taxes, cut regulation, gutted the EPA. He did everything he could to help the oligarchs. And I think, you know, that's the bottom line. And, And, you know, we'll see where that all goes. Dave, thanks for the call. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's up?
9: Uh, Hey, Tom, I I totally agree with you that the Democrats have to go full throttle for impeachment proceedings because, you know, like as an attorney, obviously, I think that Clarence Thomas is way woeful. You know who's calling for this
4: is Ilhan Omar. She's the only person in Congress who's calling for impeachment hearings against Clarence Thomas, which astonishes me. Just
9: one? Really? Exactly. And, And I think it shows that. Somehow they think that Supreme Court justices are not able to be impeached. But uh, this is why, you know, I, I just found this article on MSNBC, this op ed, and they're reminding us of this case of Samuel Chase, who was impeached from the you know, who was impeached. He was not uh, removed because, from office, though. Right, he was not, right. Was what year was that, by office. the
4: way? That was late 1700s, early 1800s?
9: Let's say since the early 1800s, around yeah. when Thomas Jefferson was president, right? Yeah, okay. And, and that's because they saw him as very, as a, like, obviously anti. Like very political, like he was too unfair to be, you know, to, right. to rule on decisions, right? He was too partisan. Well, and he was. And there-
4: I mean, Chase was was an outspoken partisan.
9: Right. Exactly. And so and what the point of this op-ed is to say is that if they were willing to impeach him on that, the Democrats have a stronger case to impeach him on this because obviously he violated judicial canon of conflicts of interest. Right. And, and the fact that he could be criminally involved in this investigation if the text messages reveal that he and uh, advised his wife on how to overturn the election.
4: Yeah, I'm Therefore, with you. I would, I would like to hear some under-oath testimony from Mr. Thomas about whether he coordinated with his wife to overthrow the government. He was the only vote on the Supreme Court to hide Trump's documents. The only vote. Alejandra, thank you.
6: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
4: On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness Is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can tweet him at ProfWolf or democracy at WRK. Uh, Wolf has two F's on the end. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Um, Thank you, Tom. It, it, glad, uh, gl- always glad to have you. The uh, war in Ukraine is taking place in what is either the fourth or fifth largest wheat producing nation in the world um, that is supplying a substantial quantity of, uh, of the calories of the planet, uh, particularly to Northern Africa. Um, I recall that the, the Arab Spring was kicked off when uh, a Tunisian street vendor uh, protesting the increase in the price of wheat caused by climate change, wiping out, you know, North African farmers uh, from Syria all the way to Tunisia and Libya, um, Im- you know, self-immolated, lit himself on fire. Um, what is this going to do to the economy of the world? What is, and what is it going to mean for food insecurity around the world? And, and ultimately, how might this also affect the United States?
10: Well, uh, this is a wonderful question, because it raises what everyone should understand, are all of the secondary and tertiary unintended, often, consequences of making war. And I should be clear making war both militarily as the invasion of Russia in the Ukraine, but also making war uh, economically, which is what the United States and Western Europe uh, in the main have been doing to Russia ever since. Uh, There will be lots of consequences. For example, the inflation will go up further than it would otherwise. It will last longer than it would have otherwise. And that's gonna take a terrible toll uh, on Americans, particularly uh, those in the lower half of the income distribution. But to get to your particular example, uh, if the uh, farmers in, in Ukraine cannot get to the production of wheat, then yes, it will affect the global wheat market. And while it is true that the wheat from Ukraine goes particularly to the Middle East and North Africa, wheat is a global commodity. If it is short in one part of the world, then people who would otherwise starve will be forced to offer more money to get that wheat from other places, and therefore the whole price of wheat will be uh, raised. It's a simple old supply demand. The demand for wheat, the demand for food, is constant or growing at a regular pace. Suddenly, the war, in this case, withdraws a portion of the supply, and then you have the bidding of all the rest of us for the scarcer amount of wheat in the world market, and it will drive the price up. But it won't just drive it up in North Africa and the Middle East, where it's scarce. It'll drive it up for everyone, including everything in the United States that is made out of wheat. The price of wheat, by the way, has been growing in the United States very dramatically, even before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. So while there'll be some voices blaming the war for all of this, uh, that really isn't true. There are many factors. The war, and particularly the war in Ukraine because of its wheat production, will ag- aggravate that thing that was already underway. But again, We need to see the war in perspective. It is going to make trends in our economy that were already there last longer and cut deeper, and that will now include food because it will be impacted by all of this.
4: In America, we have actual, what the government refers to euphemistically as food insecurity. Uh, You and I would call it hunger. Um, There are millions of American children who go to bed hungry every night. Uh, Millions of families who are rationing food or who are eating food that, frankly, people shouldn't be eating. I mean, you know, they're living in food deserts and things like this. Um, It seems like this is just going to exacerbate that problem. I don't, uh, frankly, recall the exact numbers. Maybe you know them. But my recollection is that food stamps provide people with roughly $3 per day per person. Uh, to buy food, maybe it's more than that now. Uh, I've been doing this show for 19 years and a lot of numbers have flown by me and, and a lot of inflation has incurred dur- during that time. But um, how how should American policy change to to deal consequentially with this you know coming increase, it sounds like a substantial increase in the price of food in the United States?
10: Well, I think the answer to that is to take a page from American history. We had a war called world war ii and during that time there was a shortage of food mainly because uh machinery railroads uh entities in our economy that were crucial to the food system had to be reassigned to fight world war ii and so the food production was cut short reduced And what food was produced was given to the military and a priority. And so we knew as a nation that the vast majority of us would now have to live for an unknown number of years of that war with a food shortage. And here's what we did. We made a decision as a nation, which is one I would support right now, not to allow the market to dictate who gets the scarce food. That is not to allow the food prices to go up so that the mass of poor and middle income people couldn't afford them. And we would have rich people buying milk for their cat before middle income and poor people could buy milk to support their children. And so what we did in America and what we ought to do now is a rationing system. The government printed and distributed ration cards. If you wanted to buy food, it wasn't enough to have money. If you didn't have a ration card, you were not gonna get that quart of milk, that dozen eggs, that gallon of gas for your car, the pound of meat, the pound of coffee, or whatever else it was that was a way of being fair about distributing the food shortage if we want to do that in our country now to be fair we would have to do something similar and it tells you a lot about the Republican and Democratic parties in this society that they're not even thinking about that chapter of American history in this time of rising inflation which of course like all inflations is a market phenomena that is best for those who have a lot of money and worst for those who don't
4: my parents both lived through that I remember as a kid growing up with stories about you know rationing food um, and not just food I mean my mom uh, <laughs> to uh, I don't know if it was to her dying day but I remember as a kid she would when the toothpaste tube was, you know, seemingly completely out of toothpaste, uh, she would squeeze it in the the door, you know, uh, (laughs) close the door on it to get that last little bit out, something that she learned to do in the 1940s when when uh i don't know if toothpaste was rationed or if it was just so expensive well,
10: um, well there is an example that you bring up they rationed uh, oil and gas in other words you couldn't get more than a certain number of gallons of gas and mm-hmm. by the way the government did that just again like now when uh, fuel prices were going crazy As they are going now. So the same logic applies. And I'd like to drive home to your audience that when the government handed out the ration tickets, it handed out You love this, to each according to their need. In other words, for a rural family, you got more gas coupons because you you know, you had to work your car, your truck, you had to go longer distances. That's what rural means. Urban people didn't. If you had a larger family, you got more coupons for milk or meat. In other words, there was an attempt to be socially fair. About a period of difficulty.
4: but 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 my parents you know my dad was a, a a rabid Republican all all his life. His father was a a, a rabid socialist, and, and I think that it was you know an ab reaction. but nonetheless they t- the stories that I heard about World War II as a kid um, were, were that everybody pulled together, even if they hated Franklin Roosevelt, once the war happened, everybody pulled together. I can't imagine that happening today when you've got you know Republicans. Uh, You know, promoting the idea that people shouldn't even wear masks after a million or nearly a million, 970,000 Americans have died from a deadly disease. Oh, we don't need masks. We don't need. uh, How how do you get them on board for something as uh, what they would describe as radical as rationing, uh, you know, food or fuel?
10: Well, you know, it has something to do with uh, with those we call leaders in our culture, you know, in our spirituality, in our religions. What happened in in World War II was that the argument was made, by the way, explicitly, that if you want a unified country to fight and win a war, you better treat everybody together. We better not just say we're all in it together. After all, we all say that. We said it about COVID, and it wasn't true. Older people, poorer people died in much greater numbers than wealthier people. But if you really want unity, you better have a rationing system. Otherwise, the disunity at home will produce anger, bitterness, envy and social divisions, which will not only be bad for us here at home, but will undermine and undercut the war effort. And boy, it seems to me, all that applies right now.
4: Yeah. Uh, amen. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, the co-founder of Democracy at Work.info and Prof Wolf with two Fs on Twitter. Professor Wolf, thanks for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you.
10: Thank you, Tom.
3: This is
4: the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. And this is from page 106. The chapter is titled The Beginnings of a Myth, Voting Fraud. For over a century, most states used biometrics to verify voter identity. Signatures done in front of a witness are nearly impossible to fake, unlike IDs, which can be easily faked. Polling place workers would compare the original registration signature with the signature of the person signing in to vote, and if they didn't match, the worker would disqualify the voter. When the Motor Voter Act was passed in 1993, not one single state required proof of citizenship to vote, and there was no national problem of voter fraud. The threat of a few years in jail is more than enough to discourage even the most ardent partisan from trying to double vote or fraudulently vote. If somebody wanted to travel internationally, he or she got a passport. The purpose of a driver's license prior to 2006 was merely to make sure that incompetent people weren't moving 3,000 pounds of steel at 60 miles an hour across the nation's roads, and to be able to track down and hold to account people who abused that privilege. With the passage of Motor Voter in 1993 though, the illegals will now be registered to vote screech immediately came bubbling up from the throats of republican consultants and politicians the washington post reflected the newspaper's position in a 1995 editorial quote a group of republican governors that includes california's pete wilson who has already sued to have the law overturned objects that the motor voter law is also a ploy by democrats to strengthen that party's electoral chances since many of those whom easier registration might add to the voter pool are groups inclined to vote against the GOP and the law could facilitate voter fraud, end quote. The editors of the Post added dryly, quote, as for fraud, registration at motor vehicle offices and by mail already works fine in many parts of the country, including in the District of Columbia. The governors ought to reconsider, end quote. But the torch had been lit and a quiet movement began within the GOP to sound the alarm fueled by the motor voter law that there could be millions upon millions of non-citizens who were or soon would be registered voters. And if those millions of illegal aliens, a perennial Republican boogeyman, were to turn out at the polls, particularly those brown people from south of the border, they'd flip the nation into the hands of the Democrats. Bush and Cheney came into the White House shaken and widely viewed by the American electorate as having marginal legitimacy. They certainly couldn't even claim a mandate to govern, having lost the popular vote. Karl Rove helped organize publicity about a crisis of illegal voting as a possible explanation for Bush's losing the popular vote by a half million. And Attorney General John Ashcroft launched the 2002 Ballot Access and Voting Integrity Initiative in the Justice Department, requiring all 100 U.S. federal prosecutors to coordinate with local officials to combat the scourge of illegal voting. And bring to justice the millions of presumed malefactors who made the election so close between bush and gore over the next three years at a cost of millions of dollars and after examining tens of millions of voters and more than a billion votes ashcroft was able to document and successfully prosecute only 24 people nationwide for voting illegally and none of them had committed in-person voter fraud of the kind that would have been stopped by voter ID. Most were people double voting, and the majority of those were wealthy white Republicans who had homes in two states and voted in person in one and mailed in a ballot to the other state. Such folks got a fine, typically around $2,500. There were also a few felons who voted and didn't know it was illegal. Karl Rove put on the pressure, though. They had to find people, ideally black or brown people with fake IDs, who could be made into national examples of the evils of in-person voting fraud if they were ever to convince Americans that stronger ID laws were necessary to stop non-citizens from voting. So the Bush White House demanded that all 100 of the nation's federal prosecutors, every single one a Bush appointee, move investigating voter fraud to the front of their agendas, sidelining other federal crimes. Eight of the prosecutors objected and were summarily fired. In Washington State, Prosecutor John McKay was fired because he refused to intervene in the 2004 election with fraud charges when Republican Dino Rossi lost that state's governor's race by a mere 129 votes. McCain told the Seattle Times that after a thorough investigation by his office, quote, there was no evidence and I am not going to drag innocent people in front of a grand jury, end quote. That was a career ender. In New Mexico, Prosecutor David Iglesias resisted GOP pressure to create a show trial around two teenage boys who somehow got onto the voting rolls, even though they were both under 18, and neither had voted. In a 2007 op-ed in the New York Times titled, Why I Was Fired, he wrote, quote, what critics who don't have any experience as prosecutors have asserted is reprehensible, namely that I would have proceeded without having proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The public has a right to believe that prosecution decisions are made on legal, not political grounds. The firings were a major scandal in the Bush administration. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by me, Tom Harmon. Picking up your phone calls here, and Jake in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's up?
3: Morning, Tom. I'd like to quiz you a little bit about that book, uh, Corruptible, in which it says that dark triad people are... Can be detected by MRI, and whether you think that is that true, and if so, why not test the legislative branch at least, at least the candidates running for those offices before you even allow them to be on a ticket.
4: Yeah, the dark triad being sociopathy, narcissism, and I'm forgetting the third.
3: Now the one I heard in the book *Corruptible* was. Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism.
4: Right. So yeah.
3: So um, Machiavellianism. It's just the, yeah. yeah, it's just the. I,
8: just I
3: have not the read the book, Jay. Is I'm what sorry. What I understand you do right now.
4: I have not read the book, so I can't I can't speak to it. You know, what, the book is asserting that actual brain structure, or brain. Actually, what MRIs measure is basically blood flow. And so you would, you know, where the iron is concentrated, they can be spun by the giant magnets and then resonated so that it pops out. And so parts of the brain are less active, parts of the brain are more active in ways that can predict those three characteristics of psychopathy. Well, I
3: I was of the impression from reading the book that only the psychopathy was detectable and that you did have to have an MRI, and anybody in the, in the MRI could be quizzed.
7: Yeah, we had Brian
4: Class on about, the sh- about that book. He wrote the book. I'm sorry, Jake, I didn't read the book. You know, I read enough of it to be able to talk to him about it on the air, and I do recall him being here and, and having the conversation, but I can't speak to any of the details. I'm sorry, Jake. Bob in uh, Alton, Illinois. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today?
5: Yeah, i I just kind of was curious about how you
6: are okay with NATO not spending money
4: I don't understand
6: you don't well you're a Trump hater obviously
4: so this is an incoherent question (laughs) you know I don't understand your question Bob what's about what's about NATO haters spending money Trump 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 tried to destroy NATO Trump no, said that he no, wanted to pull the no. United States out of NATO. He was constantly attacking NATO. He lied when he said that you okay, know these countries in NATO were not paying me, their dues. There are no dues. Tank. They don't pay their dues. They there are no dues what? for NATO. There are no dues. There's a standard. You're supposed to you're supposed to spend two percent, as I recall, maybe three percent of your GDP on defense. And he was pointing out yeah, that Germany was, had historically what Germany not hit that. Yeah. did Germany.
5: What did Germany spend? Point. One or two percent?
4: No, it was it was over one percent, but it was less than the two or three percent. It was not over one percent. Don't blow smoke at my ass. Okay. Under one (laughs) percent. All right, Bob, you got it. Uh, You know, let's assume that you're right. so, So what? So you are so proud of being in Germany, right? You know, Bob, uh, you know when you when you want to wander into ad hominems and trying to you know ter- make things personal, you've lost your argument. Reggie in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Reggie, what's on your mind?
11: How's it going, Tom? This is going to be hard to follow. <laughs> yeah, well, we do well, have a couple minutes. I um, I mean, to talk to you for a, a while about something. It's, it actually came out of a, a work assignment I had some years ago, about twenty years ago. I was assigned to lead something called knowledge management. Uh huh. And it was an area where you know people didn't know a lot about it, so I did research into it. and you know, looking into the different information quantities, what I ended up finding out is uh, right around two thousand we we lost control of information. It was something that was happening for thousands of years with advances in technology.
4: which information?
11: but, all information, the ability to control it. That's the thing where authority has always been based on the ability to control information. Well, that's interesting uh, to be able to, control, to control narratives. Have you, um, have you read The Dawn of We're Everything, Down. Reggie? I have not, but I. That's you know, one of the principal premises
4: of the book. The, there, there are uh, three dimensions of society. I recommend the book, you'd love it. But, Reggie, okay. we just have 25, 30 seconds left here, so if you want to make it. Okay,
9: well.
11: I did end up putting all of this in a book that I call Intel Ethics, but you know I would love to get your opinion on that. I, I emailed you Louise on book? it earlier today. I did. It's on it's on Amazon right now. What's the title uh, of it? Intel Ethics, because it's about uh, I-N-T-E-L? We, we
4: E-T-H-I-C-S. Oh, ethics. Intel ethics. ethics. Okay. I will check it out, Reggie. Thanks a lot for the call. And and you just gave your book a good plug. I hope it works out for you. And I mean that sincerely. I'm I'm a fan of people who are authors. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, which includes you. So get out there, get active, tag your ed. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Pray for peace in the world. There's so many places that have such problems.
3: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.